0: Some common sense.
1: Yes, sir. They have the cars stopped in Tim and Grantch, Michael fire. We
2: still don't know who pulled the trigger.
0: And welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, a 27-year veteran of the NYPD. Guys, we have a really good show tonight. I think it's sort of thought-provoking, just some legali- legalisms in this, that we have uh, the great professor and attorney Mike Geary with us tonight to explain that. And for, for lesser laws, but still a law and still police work, we have Straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi, before I bring them on the show. What we're going to talk about is the Koberger defense has raised some interesting issues. And one of them is called the old-fashioned alibi. Are they really going to go with the fact that he was not there? He wasn't at 1122 King Road between 0400 and 0430 on November 13th, 2022. Is that really what they're going to go with? So we're going to. Are they going to expect the DNA not to maybe to be thrown out, but in the minds of the jury to be disqualified because it's touch DNA and not blood or biological fluid DNA or hair DNA. It's touch DNA. So are they going to expect that the jury is just going to say, "Oh, yes, that knife sheath have, could have gotten there." so many different ways and his DNA could have gotten on the button release so many different ways. The other thing is, is that, and we're going to talk a little in more depth about they were actually looking to see, to have the grand jury indictment thrown out. Apparently that is like being on your 40 yard line, fourth down and you're throwing into the end zone for your last play of the game. In essence, a hail Mary pass. We don't think that's probable, but nonetheless, they're pulling out all stops. But the fact that they're going to say that he was never there, that means the word alibi. So to grant an alibi, don't you need someone else to testify on your behalf that they were with you or you were somewhere else and they saw you there? Is that potentially what they're going to raise the specter of that? If they bring in their own witness, is that witness able to be sworn? Is the witness going to be believable? Is the witness not have a rap sheet a mile long? Or is the the witness going to be a drug dealer? Because maybe they're going to take that route. They're going to say that Brian Koberger went back to using drugs and He was in that neighborhood, and he even reconned it 12 times because he was scoring drugs. So these are some of the things we were thinking that they may raise to create doubt in this case. So without any further ado, I'm going to bring in my two guests tonight. And first, I'm going to introduce you straight out of Brooklyn, retired NYPD detective, Phil Grimaldi. How are you doing tonight, Phil? I'm doing pretty good, Billy. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I think that we're all ready to go at this, and you know, We're always accused of being too pro-prosecution because we are coppers, right? (laughs) We were former coppers. So, uh, yeah, we say this is a a podcast from a police point of view, a police perspective. So naturally, we're seeing the police point of view, the police perspective. And we're going to question the defense as to why they're doing things like they're planning on doing. Phil, your thoughts on that?
2: Well, listen, uh, there's several ways. Uh, you talked about the alibi in your open. Now, there's several several ways, actually many ways to uh, establish an alibi. Obviously, eyewitness testimony, someone that you were with, whether it be a, a, an upstanding citizen or even a, you know, it could be a, a prostitute, a drug dealer. So uh, that's one way establishing a alibi. Other ways are video evidence. If you uh, go into location, as a video camera, or perhaps you use a credit card in the location. Uh, that's other ways. And I'm not sure what exactly defense is going to try and bring up with regard to the alibi. I just laid out a couple of factors that you could use as far as an alibi. So again, uh, many ways to establish an alibi. Let's see what the defense has up their sleeve.
0: Absolutely. And with us tonight also, is not just a guy with NYPD credentials as a sergeant, but he figured out the game early on in his career and went back to school and got educated. <laughs> he got educated and got a, picked up a law degree, and now he's a professor. Uh, so straight out of the Bronx, law degree, professor, retired NYPD sergeant, Mike Geary. Welcome to the show tonight, Mike.
3: Hey, Bill. Thank you for having me on. Good evening, Phil. Good to see How you. How are you,
2: Mike? Same here, pal.
3: Good.
0: Mike, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Thank and I just wanted to mention now, Mike, I know you're the one with the law degree here, so I'm going to let you speak because you're an academic besides being a former police officer, sergeant. I don't want to uh, demote you. I know you were a sergeant. <laughs> Mike, the, the grand jury, now the grand jury as we know it, as I've always known it, the standard of proof for a grand jury was probable cause. And for them to vote for a true bill to indict, was a probable cause. All of a sudden, all of a sudden in, in Idaho, they're saying, "Oh no, it's beyond a reasonable doubt." Your thoughts?
3: Yeah, Bill, it's a great argument that Ann Taylor's making, and it's it's uh, unique, uh, and it's uh, based on very, very old, uh, archaic language from the eighteen hundreds in uh, Idaho's law. If if you go to Title Two under Idaho law, there's something called the presentation. And it's it's just a public accusation of a criminal wrongdoing. And if uh, that it happens, this per- person is taken into custody, and then their attorney gets a chance to um, uh, cross examine prosecution witnesses. And you know, and then if it's if the case is meritorious, it moves on to 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 a trial. Uh, Idaho law also uh, allows for. The, the grand jury. And under Idaho law, the the wording again is archaic. It's from the 1800s. It, it says that a grand jury indictment should be based on evidence, uh, should occur only if the evidence would warrant conviction by a trial jury. So the, the uh, defense is saying, ah, that archaic language is saying that the uh, grand jury must have proof beyond a reasonable doubt because that's the tr- jury, that's a trial jury standard. Now, that language is very archaic. It's over hundred years old, and no court in Idaho has dis- ever held that that requires a grand jury to uh, have proof beyond a reasonable doubt. No, that's always been, the trial standard, and it has always been the grand jury standard that it's uh, probable cause. So um, there, it's, it, I think also in Ann Taylor's papers, she admits that um, the the whole, you know, uh, Idaho case law is totally against her. Idaho tradition is totally against her. A judicial tradition is totally against her, but Billy, it's the Hail Mary pass, and so so the chances of it being successful are really slim. She's doing the best she can with the case that got put in her lap. She's doing all of her ethical duty. If I was in the if Koberger's case, if she was my attorney, I'd want her to try everything possible. Um, Don't expect the judge. I don't think the the, the, the um, listening public should expect the judge to suddenly just say, oh, yeah, throw that indictment out. No, the, the idea that you are going to change to, you know, 100 years of judicial tradition in a state that would only be done a with a decision by the Idaho Supreme Court agreeing with with Ms. Taylor and then a uh, the Idaho state you know legislature rewriting the actual text of the grand jury uh, title 2 of the criminal procedure law it's a great argument it's a really interesting argument um, it's a fantastic argument but it's really of an it's really an academic argument and i don't think the judge is going to touch it i think the judge is going to say we're past that we're you know we're 30 days out from the trial uh, 60 days out from the trial it's been decided that the, you know, that if you ever wanted to raise that, you would have to raise that with state legislature. We're not going to do that here. We're moving on. I don't think it's going to happen.
0: You know, Mike, are we going to be tested on this? Because I, 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 <laughs> yeah. I hope you were
3: taking notes.
0: I didn't take any notes. I don't know if I can remember all of that, but uh, I want to ask one question of you and Phil, you might know this answer too. Um, In New York, one thing, we all know the grand jury proceedings are secret. Mm -hmm. But in New York, I believe they have to give the defense the opportunity Mm -hmm. to allow their client to testify. And it seems like that wasn't done here. Phil, you want to comment on that first, and then I'll go to Mike or...
2: Well, one of the things that is really puzzling about this whole thing is if they were to throw out the grand jury uh, indictment, I don't think it would be that hard to re-indict him based on all the evidence. Now, as far as uh, giving him the opportunity to uh, testify at the grand jury, I think his attorney would be absolutely insane to put him into a grand jury because now he can be asked questions about, you know, where he was, what he was doing or or any of the, the things we talked about with regard to evidence. So I doubt that's, you know... Uh, going to happen. However, if he wasn't afforded the opportunity, perhaps there was, uh, you know, one of the criteria wasn't met, and they can throw out the grand jury indictment based on that. That's a question of whether or not they were afforded that uh, opportunity. Mike, uh, do you know the answer to that as well?
3: Yeah, um, you know, Phil. Yeah, in New York, um, you're supposed to notify the defense counsel that you're going to seek an seek an indictment uh, if. And to give the defendant the opportunity to testify in their own behalf in front of the grand jury. Now that's really risky, and very few defendants, except maybe maybe like maybe a self-defense case, a homeowner wants to. That's what I was thinking. Self-defense. Yeah, that's exactly. always like the classic one that you would, might want to do that. Absolutely, mm-hmm. but you have to give them notice, and if they if the defense the defendant decides to testify in New York at the grand jury they go in there and their defense attorney, their attorney cannot help them. They cannot help them. And the defense they attorney, can't
2: object. They can't they stop. Nothing,
3: nothing right, at exactly. all. They can't object. They can't help. They can't whisper in his ear, nothing. You take that stand and you risk it. Now, I don't know in Idaho, if it's exactly the same as in New York, because not all States have the exact same wording. Um, She didn't seem to raise the specter that he wasn't afforded his uh, uh, his uh, opportunity to testify in front of a grand jury. However, he wouldn't be testifying at a preliminary hearing either. because The preliminary hearing is only uh, like the grand jury. It's the prosecution having to meet its burden of proof at that stage of the criminal trial process. And again, like you said, Phil, um, really no no defense attorney worth their salt would really want their client, especially somebody like Kohlberger, um, testifying in front of a grand jury at all. But
0: Mike, they're just using it for an area to protest. Oh, yeah. They weren't afforded the opportunity. So we protest, even though, of course, no way would we have had our client testify. But why didn't you give us the opportunity?
3: Right, right. So it's one of those. Th- what it's? It, I think the time. If she had wanted to uh, raise that argument, uh, she should have raised it. Oh, like sixty days ago. You know what I mean? Um, I
2: think. It, I think it's more of they're looking for a, an I that wasn't dotted, a T that wasn't right. crossed, specifically right. in the statute that you talked about with the grand jury wording. Oh, they mm-hmm. they had an aha moment. Oh, this was written so long ago. Perhaps we could say. We want a proof beyond a reasonable doubt brought into the grand jury process. So again, I think that, like you said, Mike, the judge is probably going to shy away from that. I don't think they're yeah. going to get anywhere with it. But listen, like you said, she's doing her job. She's looking for those yeah. I's that weren't dotted or T's that weren't crossed. And that's what they're going to try and expel on.
3: And, and the, worst, the worst case scenario for, for, for the state of Idaho, if the judge does actually throw, it, throw out the indictment, they'll just go to a preliminary hearing. And they'll do, you know, just do that, that little mini trial where he, has, he establishes, the prosecutor establishes uh, probable cause. And there is some give and take because the, uh, Ann Taylor can have a run at the witnesses. But then again, as you, me, a- and, um, you know, Billy know, we've gone in to testify to grand jury. You don't have to show your entire case to the grand jury. You just take a couple of, of, of your better witnesses. Put them in front of the judge. Uh, in this case, you put them in front of the judge um, and just have them tell what they did in the investigation. So,
2: and they're what, very brief in, in the statements that they make. They'll just say, oh, "Were you at this location at this time? Oh, were there shots fired? Did you see?" And they give right. a brief. They don't go into detail. It's very brief and concise grand jury, which a lot of people don't realize. Right. It's not like this big proceeding. It's very just to establish, as Bill and I mm-hmm. talked about before we went on the. Uh, We want to establish that there is probable cause and that we're going to continue on with the judicial process and, and, you know, continue on with the charges. If a grand jury
0: decided on the basis of the standard of Beyond a Reasonable Doubt, then why would you need a trial? Exactly. That's the whole purpose here. Exactly. I want to play a little bit of, when we talk about alibi, alibi, and we briefly touched upon it, Court TV talks about it and they draw up, reasons that the timeline of uh of brian Koberger on the early morning hours
4: the probable cause affidavit in the case against the accused killer of four university of idaho students pieces together the movements of the suspect vehicle and coordinating cell phone location data beginning in the early morning hours of november 13th 2.42 a.m., the affidavit alleges that Brian Koberger's phone places him likely at his apartment on the WSU campus where he was a Ph.D. student studying and teaching criminology. At 2.44 a.m., Koberger's vehicle and cell phone are on the move. Police say his white Hyundai Elantra is spotted on WSU surveillance cameras traveling north on Nevada Street at Stadium Way. According to the affidavit, it was here in this area of the WSU campus where surveillance video and Cooper's cell phone placed him here around 2.47 a.m. According to the affidavit, he spent several minutes in this area where he allegedly turned off his cell phone before heading out of town toward Moscow, Idaho. My two-
0: Mike, turning off your cell phone. To me. I, I, I want to I hear you. Say, we want to hear the, uh, girism. the girism. Go All ahead. Right. All
3: <laughs> right. It's not as good as the word surreptitiously, which is a canonism, but uh, consciousness of guilt?
2: There
0: it is. Yes, that's what I was thinking of because right? it's definitely a premeditated act. Oh, yeah. And the prosecution is going to point to that, no doubt. I mean, who turns off their cell phone? Especially, you look, when I'm in my car... My cell phone's in the charger because, yeah. you know, you're using your cell phone for so many different things, GPS, whatever. So Billy, they could, they, off- could,
2: they could look at his history to see how many times he's turned it off in the past, and it's probably very few. So that that's what they're going to establish. They're going to establish consciousness of guilt based on the fact that he turned it off when he left his area went towards uh, Idaho, and now went towards, went towards Moscow, Idaho. And now when he returns, all of a sudden it's back on. So again, it's, it's, it's not that hard to present to a jury to establish in your mind consciousness of guilt. 100%.
4: 2.53 a.m., Coburger's white Hyundai Elantra is observed heading in the direction of Moscow, Idaho. At 3.26 a.m., the affidavit then places...
0: I want to just interject something now. We know that in New York City or anywhere else in in the New York metropolitan area, cameras that give you a red light summons, they have no problem taking a picture of your license plate. Is there any possibility that any of these cameras were red light cameras that actually caught his license plate? That would be so powerful, the evidence, because now you'd only have, not only do you have GPS and cell site hits, You have his car on video. And then if they could, if they actually have his license plate, I mean, that's powerful, Mike.
3: Yeah. Billy, they remember his car was registered in Pennsylvania. And if I recall correctly, Pennsylvania only issues one plate. And I think you put it on the back of the car. Um, and then he ended up, uh, re-registering his car in Colorado, but on the night of the homicides, um, there is, uh, I remember one picture of a very grainy picture, and you could see that there's no license plate on the front of the car, as a lot of other states, including Colorado, would have you do two, two license plates like New York and everybody else. So I think the I, the the fact that uh, even if you don't get that his his uh, exact license plate, uh, the fact that his car is a little bit unique in that. It, does, it only has one license plate in the back, no license plate on the front, I think is, is, is excellent because that just adds, you know, as you and Phil say, it's just a little bit more circumstantial evidence.
0: Wow. You know, and, and again, attorneys or, or well, actually attorneys admit, I think most attorneys admit that circumstantial evidence can be very powerful evidence. However, you have writers and journalists that say, oh, it's circumstantial. Uh, and their second favorite thing in jurisprudence is motive. Even though we all know that you don't have to prove motive, but they love it. Journalists and uh, you know anyone that covers this story, they love motive and they act as if it must be proved and it does not.
4: This Koburger's vehicle now in the town of Moscow in this residential neighborhood on Indian Hills Drive. This happens to be a road directly overlooking the Moscow Police Department. The Elantra is picked up on surveillance video moving west past the 700 block of Indian Hills. At 3.28 a.m., video shows the vehicle on Steiner Avenue at Highway 95 as it made its way towards the King Road neighborhood where the victims lived. Then, from 3.29 a.m. to 4.20 a.m., the suspect vehicle, the white Honda Elantra, is observed multiple times on video passing by 1122 King Road during the alleged time of the murders before being seen on video speeding away on Walenta Drive. The probable cause affidavit states that the car likely exited the neighborhood at Palouse River Drive and Conestoga Drive, a road that eventually leads to Pullman, Washington. About two hours after he allegedly turned off his cell phone, police say Koberger turned it back on here near Blaine, Idaho. It's about 10 to 15 minutes south of Moscow, a rural community off Highway 95, and it has its own cell tower. According to the affidavit, from 4.50 a.m. to 5.26 a.m., Coburger's phone movements show him allegedly moving south towards Genesee, Idaho, and west towards Uniontown, Washington.
0: I would submit that during those times is when he got rid of his potential bloody clothing, whether it be a Tyvek suit or whatever he was wearing over his clothing. And of course the murder murder weapon. weapon, he had lots of time to do that. I would submit, you know, I read some of these journalists and what happened to the, the knife? Hey dude, he had an hour over an hour, according to his cell phone to get rid of that before he wound up heading home and then back. To Idaho. So he had plenty of time, not just to get rid of the murder weapon and potentially bloody clothes. Also, he had time to wash up. So that is probably what I believe that he did. Phil, I could see you busting out to get in here.
2: No, what I was going to say was I agree with you 100%. In that period of time, he probably got rid of the knife, probably got rid of the bloody clothing but he also wasn't apprehended for seven weeks. He had seven weeks to get rid of these items. They didn't do the search warrants until seven weeks after the murders took place. So all that time passed, and just because a murder weapon isn't recovered, how many convictions have we gotten where the murder weapon wasn't recovered? It's not the the, the do-all and tell-all of getting a conviction that that murder weapon wasn't recovered. If it's recovered, that's fantastic, that's solid. But sometimes, and a lot of times, you get a conviction without the murder weapon. Same thing with the motive. Motive is not, and we've said it numerous times, not necessary to convict. However, it's nice to have. If you have the motive, it it, it kind of puts it all in a nice, neat package. And the fact that they're saying, well, there wasn't any contact between the victims and the perpetrator, again, he could have been observing them from afar and there was no contact. We don't know. That hasn't really been revealed. So again, a lot of these things will be brought out at the trial, and I think that all the circumstantial evidence, as well as the physical evidence, is going to lead the jury in the right direction. Absolutely. Sharon Reynolds,
0: I have to comment, the excellent comment. I'm saying this hypothetically, but I would have thought this was a slam-dunk case for the prosecution. Maybe not. Sharon, it is never a slam-dunk case. A prosecutor never, ever knows what a jury is going to do, and that's why our system is the fairest system in the world, but is un, at times unpredictable. Potentially, as you said, Sharon, slam dunk cases are not, are not slam dunk. Mike?
3: Yeah, I think you're right, Billy, because we've, we've heard of high profile cases in our times here um, over the course of many years. You just don't know what a jury's going to do. You don't know. Um, you could be 99% certain, but there's always that tiny little bit of a doubt And um, I I think one of the things that um, uh, Ms. Taylor is trying to do is create doubt in the public's mind, create doubt in the judge's mind, create doubt in the prosecutor's mind about what she's going to do, what what evidence, what's the reliability of the prosecution's evidence. It's her chance to, um, you know, get in there. And because remember, she's going to be picking a jury in a couple of months maybe five months, who knows now, there's a little delay, but she wants a possible potential jury pool to have in the back of their mind, wow, you know, this really isn't a slam dunk case, is it? And so it's kind of like a little bit of a battle uh, right now to for to prepare for the battle coming up ahead in a couple of months. So yeah, we, we know, you, me and Phil know that you nothing is 100% a sure bet.
0: You know, Mike, there was a case that um, I was on in Manhattan. I'll just briefly, because I uh, mentioned that this guy, Paul Cortez, killed this this dancer uh, who was uh, from Ohio. And uh, she was his girlfriend, but then she broke up with him. Anyway, uh, he, he murdered her in her apartment, practically cut her head right off uh, with a knife. And they found behind the bedpost a bloody fingerprint and it turned out to be his. And they didn't find this bloody fingerprint till three or four days after they, they held the crime scene open. Do you know that this case was not a slam dunk? Was not they, What they were talking about, what convicted him more than anything else, was not that bloody fingerprint, was a pair of shoes that he wore that they caught him wearing on video that his mother had bought for him using her credit card that was what the jury like focused upon, not the bloody fingerprint on the wall that you would think like, wow, his bloody fingerprint is on the wall. He did it, you know, but that wasn't it. So again, I'm just saying this for the unpredictability of a jury. You don't know what they're thinking. And and that was a perfect, uh, and, and he got convicted and got 25 to life, but it was not. And the best prosecutor in the Manhattan DA's office had that case. And, uh, so the competence was there his his experience his skill as a prosecutor and he still almost uh, didn't get a conviction
2: Billy, I don't like that term slam dunk case because I think if you use that term, you're going to drop your guard and you could make a, a big mistake that could lead to an acquittal. And I agree with you, Billy. Uh, you know, we don't know what the jury's going to do. They're very unpredictable. However, having a strong case here, yeah, I think this is a strong case. And I think the defense is going to have a lot of heavy lifting to try and get an acquittal on this case. But it's still not a slam dunk. Dot your eyes and cross well, your
0: You're right. It's never a slam dunk. And that's, no, what, of I'm course tr- that's what I'm trying to say.
4: Koberger may have taken a well-known back road called Thorn Creek Road at this point in his route towards his apartment. These are all very isolated roads but Thorn Creek Road is known to be even more desolate. Police allege Koberger eventually made his drive back into Pullman, Washington from the quiet road of Johnson where his vehicle was picked up on this security camera. The first time a camera captured his Hyundai after the murders were committed. By 5.30 a.m., police tracked the movements of Koberger's cell phone and vehicle back to his apartment.
1: All right, and he's claiming an alibi. How is that going to work? How is that going to work? I mean,
2: he's out pulling an all-nighter, and he's, like, just driving around, so I couldn't have done it. My alibi is I'm driving around where the murder's taking place in my white Elantra.
0: Exactly that. What is his alibi when he's, they have all of this digital evidence, digital evidence that Howard Bloom writing for airmail Air magazine calls that junk science, Howard Bloom writing for, a, for airmail magazine is junk science, not digital evidence in a case like this, you know, which is science. Digital evidence is science. So for you to call it junk science, again, I know you're trying to sell your story, but it's not junk science. That Ask um, Alec Murdoch if it's junk science. And with that Snapchat video, and someone corrected me uh, correctly. I was calling it a TikTok. It in fact, was Snapchat. That Snapchat video, junk science. That's why he's in prison for the rest of his life. A good... Well, Well, not in its entirety, but that was such powerful evidence that junk science—you call it junk science—that's why he's doing life without parole, Mike.
3: Yeah, Billy. um, You know the idea that uh, look, Howard Bloom, Mister Bloom, Mister Bloom is 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 writing a book, and he's throwing out. I I I told you this. uh, I was thinking about this yesterday. He's throwing out a little chum in the water, and he's fishing. He's fishing for customers for his book. Hopefully, his figures will probably come out in a couple of months. And uh, he's little tidbits here, little tidbits there, getting people excited. And maybe they're going to want to buy his book. He's a fabulous writer, but I think he's kind of going a little bit overboard. Junk science? I don't think so. We're talking about, um, you know, uh, cell phone data. And it's you have engineers that have engineered these towers, and it picks up all this information. He uses a cell phone, I'm sure, constantly. I don't think he would call his cell phone bill junk science. I don't think he would call his ability like no, you know like they want they
0: want junk they want junk money to pay for right. that junk science. That's
3: right. Like <laughs> come on, exactly. So okay. he has gotta he's gotta create uh, tension and excitement for the readers to say, oh that's junk science. Wow, I never I, I thought you know cell phone tower data and all all stuff was accurate. Wow, it's junk. It uh It's silly. It's his right to do it. You know, I don't think so. I don't think it's... You know, Mike,
0: there was a great article in the New York Times after the Murdoch conviction and it was an op-ed by some uh, writer for the Times. I I Mm -hmm. forget his name now. He claimed the same thing. He was baffled as to how all of this technological evidence is going to put a man in prison for the rest of his life. And do we really want to do this? And we, we were all looking at each other like, what is this guy talking about, dude? This is called science. You know that everyone always points to people that are uneducated as like believe the science. Yeah, you have to believe the science. You know, believe that when a body is dead, it cools. That's science, right? Believe when someone's dead, the body goes into rigor mortis. Believe when they're dead, it goes into algor mortis, right? It goes into putrefaction. It decomposes. All science. So if you're going to deny digital science, then maybe you have to deny some of these other scientific things that we've learned over the years. And, you know, digital evidence is so, so powerful. And when I hear people acting like it's not, please, uh, then you need to uh, go back to school and listen to one of Professor Geary's lectures, you know? Uh
2: Billy, I sat through a trial about seven years ago that had a ton of digital evidence video and cell phone technology was introduced. Now when you hear an expert on the stand and they explained it to a jury and they went into detail about how they come to the conclusions with regard to the mapping or the locations, it's a little bit confusing but when they took the time and you have an expert that explains it to a jury, the jury was able to conclude that that person was at that location at that time when you have cell phone and video together it wasn't that hard to put it together. Now I'm sure in this case they're going to have the experts come forward. They're going to explain the technology. They're they're going to explain how they came to the conclusions that they're testifying to. They're going to be challenged by the defense attorneys, but I think the juries are not dumb. They're smart. They're going to listen. They're going to pay attention, and they're going to say, "Hey, this is more logical than what that uh, defense attorney is trying to put forward." The prosecution is saying that he was at this location based on his uh, uh, cell phone technology, or he was at this location based on his video evidence, and it's got to be you know, beyond a reasonable doubt, and it's reasonable. Once you have the experts that will testify, I don't think the jury is going to have a hard time coming to conclusions based on the evidence that's going to be put forward. And as we know, there's 51 terabytes of evidence, which is a ton that was given over to the defense, probably hundreds of hours of video, as well as this, this technology from the cell phone stuff. So it's going to be a lot. But I think the experts will be able to sift through and explain it to the jury in layman's terms, and hopefully they'll be able to come to the conclusion that we want, which is a conviction.
0: Absolutely. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you like real crime, true crime from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. Uh, And if you're not subscribed to us, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and ring that bell and also if if you want to support us financially we have a patreon with three different levels and we also have a youtube channel members uh with five different levels and you see the folks in the green font they're our friends our subscribers our fans and they're big supporters of the police off the cuff podcast so mike what we're talking about obviously is alibi alibi and you hit it really on the head early on when we start talking about this, that to have an alibi, you need another human being swearing to your location. Go ahead, Professor.
3: Yeah, that's the traditional idea of what alibi means for, for, you know, 200 years. If I'm a defendant, I can say I got an alibi. It's a living, breathing person, or you know, that with the help of, like, like Phil said, with the help of surveillance video to say that you were at a bank doing something at a particular time, you were at a bar on a date at a particular time, at a particular location far away from the crime scene, you, uh, you're going to have, you know, a little bits of piece of evidence and a human being attached to it, which will vouch for you. Um, and it seems that Ann Taylor, uh, in her in her um, motion to the judge, uh, that to say that she's going to have an alibi witness, she said that the alibi Witness, uh, she's going to have alibi evidence corroborating the defendant's being at a location other than Kings Road. It will be, and that evidence will be disclosed pursuant to discovery and evidentiary rules through cross examination of state's witnesses as well as a defense witness. Now, that my take on that is that whenever uh, the prosecution witnesses get up there, there might be several engineer people who are going to talk about the, uh, ev- the cell phone evidence and the cell tower technology as Phil alluded to. And the experts will not be able to say, you know, based on the pinging of the, uh, uh, you know, of the cell phone or, or you know, that sort of thing. Uh, he's at a particular location. You can't pinpoint somebody being at a particular foot on the ground, like a like a, you know, to, to the inch he's, his cell phone Remember, his cell phone pinged about 18 times or 15 times before the homicides over the course of a semester. I think he's going to have to admit he was in the area and maybe he's going to say he bought drugs from somebody. He has a drug problem. He bought marijuana, he bought alcohol. And it's so close to the King's road address that it's pinging off the same tower, but that does not mean that he was actually, uh, Reconnaissance, doing reconnaissance, or you know, uh, you know, surveillance of that of those those people, and um, so I think therefore he's going to be able to. He's going to probably testify himself on on uh, on the defense attorney's uh, when the defense's case in chief. uh, He'll have to get up there on the stand and say, "This is what I was doing." You know, this whole idea about me being there. Uh, harassing these women, driving around, reconnoitering the area. No, I was buying drugs and, and you know, don't believe, you know, everything here. No, that was what I was doing. That was my motive. In fact, on the day of the homicides, you know, my phone was off. You know, I accidentally turned it off or I turned off. Maybe the battery's dying. He's going to come up with something. But I think he's going to try to use prosecution witnesses to, to admit that, you know, the cell phone data isn't exact. It's exact in ter- terms of time and cell phone tower, but that won't give you his exact physical location. And um, he may have to testify on his own to say, my alibi is I was buying drugs. And hopefully he, he, he's going to get up on the witness stand and be chewed up by the uh, the prosecutor on cross. I don't think he's going to be able to produce a living, breathing human being, to say that on that night, November uh, the November thirtieth—that's Sunday night,
0: no, November 13th
3: Thirteenth, I'm sorry, November thirteenth. That night, be- between four a.m. and five a.m., he was with me buying drugs. I don't think he's going to come up with that. Um, so it's—I it, think Ms. Taylor is using a lot of, like, like in the, like in the request to get the indictment thrown out. She's using, she's, she's a wordsmith. She's using, she's trying to show that, the prosecution's own witnesses will help me establish an alibi.
0: So Uh, Mike, basically it's strategy. She's, she's using strategy. yeah, Yeah. This makes the prosecution work a little harder, doesn't it?
3: Yeah. Yeah. She knows what she like. This isn't her first time in the rodeo. She knows and she knows what she's facing. She's done death penalty cases before she understands how that there's DNA evidence. They're always going to try to say like with the touch DNA, oh, it really doesn't mean anything. Oh my goodness, that doesn't establish a connection. Of course, they're going to say that because uh, you know there's <laughs> going to be a jury pool picked, a veneer picked soon, and he/she wants the public to think it's it's not a really fabulous case. Uh, to say, hey, look, when we if if you're going to be on that panel, she's putting it in people's minds that. Yeah, there is a lot to argue about in this case. There's a lot of ways that you could look at this case. Don't just agree with the prosecutor's case. No, give me an opportunity, an open mind, and I'm going to fill you with my version of the events.
0: You know, Jeff M., uh, the defense is very limited and decided to go with this alibi defense. What if the prosecutors present a bulldozer load evidence a week before the trial and the defense realizes their angles? You know, Jeff, we had discussed that because we firmly believe that the prosecution has a ton more evidence than they've let, than they they've let be known so far, and the defense could just, you know, yeah, would that make them do a U-turn on this alibi thing? Well, look what it did to uh, Alec Murdoch. He lied about being on the scene. He lied. He he. Built his own alibi. I wasn't there. And then when he found out about that Snapchat video in Discovery,
2: he all it was down except there. the
0: county. Yeah.
2: Billy, let me just expand a little bit on what Mike was talking about with regard to cell phones. Now, his cell phone was turned off in between that period. Now, when he was doing the recon, when he was uh, in the location, his cell phone was pinging at the same cell tower that it would be hitting if he was in that area. That's what they're going to establish. When you make a call though, when you make a call, it can give your exact location within feet. okay? When you're just pinging, it gives a general area. It could be a few blocks, could be a mile. I'm not sure the exact depends on the, uh, the cell tower location. Uh, you know sometimes the cell towers are more spread out in, in the uh, you know the countryside or different things like that. but in the cities there's uh, cell towers very close to one another. so the areas are shorter. So with regard to that, I think that uh, that's going to be brought out by the experts. I think Ann Taylor is kind of, uh, when she makes that statement that she's going to cross-examine witnesses, I think she's assuming she's going to be able to rattle and discredit experts on the stands. She's making that assumption. That's what she's going to try to do. Whether or not she's successful, God only knows uh, whether or not these witnesses are going to be able to stand up to cross-examination. In my opinion, they're experts. I think they're going to be. And again, if they put a witness forward that's going to try and establish an alibi for uh, Brian Kohlberger, it has to be corroborated as well. So if if he stopped and bought a soda at a 7-Eleven, they're going to want to know, well, was the video camera on it? You can say he was there at 4.07 a.m. buying the soda when we believe the murders took place. That's another thing that's going to be a little tricky. Just because a person says it, now they're going to have to be cross-examined. They could say, "Well, I, I, you know, he came into my gas station, and I pumped gas for him." Whatever it is, whoever this alibi witness is going to be, they're going to have to stand up to the cross examination by the prosecution. So again, uh, they're going to have a big, big hill to climb to get uh, an acquittal in this case. There's a lot of evidence, and I think, uh, you know, I think we all know that there's the conspiracy theories out there and the stuff that this guy Bloom is writing. I mean, he, he in his article he says, "There's no motive, there's no case." That's baloney.
0: Yes. Deborah Barron, I believe Kaylee's father said his phone pick up their Wi-Fi during his recon. Uh, Deborah, there's a good possibility, except that hasn't been verified. So unless we have it verified, we really can't go. And those could be the the really powerful pieces of evidence that the prosecution has that hasn't been let out yet. So, yes, I I agree with you. Uh, I want to play a little bit more of this. This is is from uh, Court TV.
5: Some brand-new court filings have just been released, and the most eyebrow-raising among them is a motion to dismiss the charges entirely. Koberger's defense team is saying that the grand jury indictment needs to be dismissed, saying that those grand jurors were misled on the standard of proof that is required for an indictment, saying that the standard should be beyond a reasonable doubt. You know that standard, the one we see at trial. Uh, They're saying it's not the standard that was given to them, which is more of a probable cause-like standard, the reasonable belief that a crime was committed by the defendant, Brian Koberger. The motion is 23 pages long and asks for a preliminary hearing in the alternative to an outright dismissal of the case. In the conclusion of the motion to dismiss Coburger's, uh, to dismiss rather, Coburger's defense team writes in part that the grand jury system in Idaho is quote tragic and unconstitutional. The motion goes on to say that no court had the power to decide that the legislature made it too hard for grand juries to do their work and change the sufficiency of evidence required to indict. Mr. Coburger is asking this court to recognize the long string of error that led us here and give back the people of the state, the protections that they are owed. Mike,
0: that is exactly what you were talking about. It's almost like they would have to rewrite the law in the legislature to pass this. So again, we said they were on their 40 line, a 40 yard line, their own throwing a Hail Mary. They're actually on their 25 yard line throwing a Hail (laughs) Mary uh, fourth down with no time left on the clock.
3: Just doing what they're, uh, you know, obligated to do under the canon of ethics. And um, she's got to try. If she, like, she, she, you know, she's been around. She knows what her chances are in this kind of case. Uh, this might be the most sensational case she's ever had. But she's tried homicide cases where the death penalty is on the table. She knows what time it is. She's doing everything possible, you know, and that's what she needs to do. That's her our obligation. And God bless her. But um, she also knows, and if she
2: doesn't, that's that's a uh, a a chance for a uh, an overturned conviction down the line in an appeal. So she has to do what she's doing. We all agree with that, and we're all for it. You know, you have to put up a defense. If she what if she didn't throw up her hands and say convict him, and then uh, he didn't get the proper defense, and then it's an appeal and it's an overturned conviction? Of course not. So she's focusing on these things, and and I think that you know uh, it's a capital murder case and. She should be doing uh, what she's doing. She should be doing a job. We don't want, uh, like I said, we don't want an overturned conviction down the line in an appeal.
3: No, no. You you want her. You want Koberger to get a, an excellent defense. You do not want him to get a cheap defense, uh, half-hearted defense, because that will, as Phil you said, that will lead to problems down the line. That's a, an appealable issue.
0: Mike uh, Lula Morocco oh. in our chat has a question from you. Professor Mike Geary will Anne challenge the fact that the Elantra was clean and no plate on the car visible, no matching DNA blood evidence in apartment or parents' house while recognizing the digital evidence.
3: Oh, I mean, sure. She's, she, Uh, Lou, absolutely. She has to challenge everything. If Einstein walked into that courtroom and said E equals MC squared, she'd get up on cross-examination and said, are you sure? Because that's, that's what she's got to do. Um, the fact that no blood evidence may have been found connecting uh, the homicide to, to the to his elantra, she it will jump up and down saying, obviously if there was so much blood all over the place, isn't there even one drop? Uh, but you couldn't find one. Come on, that doesn't make sense. It, it's not his. Oh, there was no picture of there was no visible picture of him in the Elantra that night. Uh you know, driving down the road. You could see an, an Elantra, but you couldn't see who was driving it. Um, the fact that the Elantra uh, is, is the, the FBI couldn't actually even determine what the, um, what model the Elantra year, the year it was. The exact until, year. Until later on. Remember there was always that, was that little thing like they changed their prediction of what they thought the Elantra was and they changed it to, to like uh, 2016 or whatever it was after they got Brian Kohlberger's name and they figured out that he's the owner of uh, an Elantra. So there's, uh, you know, yeah, all of these little things, Lou, they, they, she has to do it. She will do it. She'll do it vigorously the best she can. Each and every, uh, you guys know, you've, you've been on, on cases where if you make one mistake on a complaint report, one mistake on an, on a, an arrest report, one mistake on an aided card, one mistake on anything, they just the uh, defense attorney is going to jump up and down, rip you to shreds. I've been there, you've been there. You get eaten up like an alligator in the Everglades, eating you up uh, on on the on the stand. You don't want that, but that's their job, and so absolutely they will do everything possible that they can do within the within the bounds of ethics to zealously advocate for Coburger. That's their job.
0: Robbie, thank you for the actual three ninety nines. Said super stickers, very much appreciated. Yeah, you thank know you. Uh, that's why I would never ride in the elevators with the defense attorneys <laughs> going up to the trial. I'll take the next one. <laughs> I didn't want any kind of opportunity of uh, speaking to them in the in the elevator. And you know the the, the AO says don't say anything in the elevator. You know if you ride together, because. They'll use that. I, I you don't think I know this slimy guy with a hundred and twenty-five dollar Robert Hall suit will use anything, you know, to truly to, to <laughs> to, to really, I had
2: I had a defense attorney on a triple homicide on a recess follow me into the bathroom and start talking to me and saying, I really believe my client I, I just didn't answer him. I went back, I told the DA, they would make a big issue of it, but they'll try anything. I mean, he saw his client was going downhill fast, it was a triple homicide and uh his client was facing a lot of time, and he said, "Let me give it a shot." You know, he gave it a shot. And obviously, I just said, uh, "Counselor, you're being a little unethical." We're in the bathroom. I don't think this is the place <laughs> to start discussing the case. So uh, let, let, let's stop right there. And uh, yeah, but I really believe my client is innocent of it. And it was it was a confession case too. I mean, it was uh, confessed to a triple homicide. You know, you, like,
0: so you should have started speaking Italian to him. He would have backed right off. He, I have he was I called him a shadro, but he did not <laughs> Schmidty, thank you so much for the $5 super sticker. Police Officer the Cuff is the place to be at the end of the night. Speaking of angles, I love the discussions you have. Okay. No nonsense. Always. Thank you. You know, someone the other day in the chat said that we purposely talk like D's, D's, and Dem's, like as if we were putting on these accents. No, these are our real accents. We don't put these on.
4: <laughs>
2: I and actually I take,
0: tame it a little bit for the podcast. I take it back. I take great umbrage at saying we sound like these, those, and them. I mean, I don't think we – I mean, yeah, we have a thick accent maybe to people that are from parts unknown, as they say in the transit police. I used to love that when the transit would put on their – parts about, unknown. The perpetrator fled to parts unknown. And I was like, what the hell does that mean? You know, But it was just the anyway. – We don't know where he is at the moment. We don't know. He <laughs> fled to parts unknown. I have no idea. I want to play a little bit of this and we'll – from News Nation.
5: Killing four Idaho college students is not revealing for now whether he has an alibi. His attorneys say that they may reveal an alibi at trial. News Nation's Alex Capriello tracking the very latest in this case for us. Alex, what are we learning about the defense's strategy from these new filings now?
1: Yeah, hey there, Natasha. It seems as if the defense's strategy is just keeping everything that they have close to the chest, really not revealing their entire hand. In the meantime, they really are poking holes in whatever they can. In specific, we're talking about the knife sheath, also the DNA that was found on it, which is hands down the biggest piece of evidence the state says that they have. The big leap that Koberger's attorneys are making here isn't that it's not his DNA on that knife sheath, but rather that it might have been planted there by police officers or the investigating crime lab. Let's take a look at a quote from a recent court filing that just came in saying, the state's argument asked this court and Mr. Koberger to assume is that the DNA on the sheath was placed there by Mr. Koberger and not someone else during an investigation that spans hundreds of members of law enforcement and apparently at least one lab the state refuses to name. The state is pushing back against that theory that the DNA and investigation is rigged, saying they don't believe how that theory supports any preparation the defense should be making for their client. Koberger's deadline, meantime... To submit an alibi for where he was on the night of the murders was last night, just within the last hour, Natasha. We did get a court filing, the response from the defense, about that alibi. They're saying that Mr. Koberger is going to remain silent at this point, which is his constitutional right. And then any alibi that might come forward at a future date would come when Mr. Koberger chooses to, if he chooses to, testify on his own behalf at a future trial. Natasha.
5: Alex Capriello, with that live update. Thank you so much. Thank you for watching.
0: You know, I take great umbrage at the fact that they're saying the police planted the DNA first of all, they didn't know who the perpetrator was, so how could they plant the DNA and that identify and they didn't know who the till they lifted that they didn't know who the perpetrator was totally ridiculous. I, I don't know uh exactly if the identification of the driver of the white Hyundai came first and then the DNA second, which solidified the identification of the driver of the white Hyundai, which of course is Brian Koberger. And then the DNA on the knife sheath, I believe that came second, solidified the identification. Of course, we have the, the initially, the DNA was identified to Brian Koberger's father, if you recall, and that was the well, well, Billy. The,
2: the, the point you're making, the DNA was uh, uh, the knife sheet was found at the crime scene right away. So again, they would have had to target uh, Brian Kohlbarger and place the knife sheet at the location of the homicide underneath one of the victims' bodies. I mean, come on, that's a stretch. That's ridiculous.
0: Yeah, I, I do too. And I, I that's the other thing, Mike. I wanted to uh, touch uh, touch you on is the fact that. There's a lot of talk about, you know, drug dealers and drug 1122 was a drug house and all unconfirmed information that, you know, the defense can use. And how far can they stretch that before it becomes really ridiculous?
3: Yeah, Billy, um, the, you know, yeah, the college kids might be smoking marijuana. They might be taking some Adderall and things like that. Um, that's not uncommon in any you know, uh, college uh, in America. And so the idea that, oh wow, they, they, the kids are, are, are drug addicts. Oh, maybe they smoke some marijuana, you know. Uh, I, I think they could try to make that argument that there's uh, to create some sort of reasonable doubt like maybe they're uh, Ethan Chapin, owed someone some money and you know, that person came back to kill them or over the money. Yeah, they could claim that, that sort of thing, say that that's where the drug angle is. But you, the, the, you know, the, the jury's only gonna go so far. Any any member of the jury, if there's a, a person on that jury that's got, has had raised teenage children, knows that they do these things. And I don't know how much traction it's gonna get. Um, a lot of hay has been made over the course of a couple of months about you know it's a Colombian drug cartel hit. Really, that's the how the drug Colombian, When's the last time you ever saw a killing Phil in Manhattan or you Billy in the Manhattan? Uh, I'm sorry, you Phil in Brooklyn, you Billy in Manhattan or me in the Bronx, a drug hit where a knife was used. No, no, you, you, the person gets shot in the middle of the street at three o'clock in the morning, they're just dead on the grand Guns Cox
2: blasting.
3: Yeah. Guns blasting. Yeah, come on. Like, no, no. It's, they're not going to get much traction out of it at all. Not at all.
6: Stand
7: the charge in count two, murder in the first degree. Brian Koberger's quadruple murder trial is scheduled to begin in less than three months. Will he provide an alibi at trial? Newly-filed court documents reveal the answer. Welcome to Sidebar here on Law & Crime. I'm Ann Jeanette Levy. Prosecutors in Brian Koberger's case want to know if he plans to present an alibi defense at trial. If he does, they say they have a right to know about it. Koberger faces the possibility of the death penalty if convicted of the murders of Maddie Mogan, Kaylee Gonsalves, Zana Kernodal, and Ethan Chapin in Moscow last November. According to the probable cause affidavit and other court documents, a K-Bar knife sheath was found under Maddie Mogan's body on her bed, and testing revealed Koberger's DNA was on the sheath. Law enforcement used genetic genealogy to locate a possible suspect and came up with a child related to Michael Koberger, that's Brian's father. According to the probable cause affidavit, detectives believe the four students were murdered sometime between 4 a.m. and 425 a.m. The affidavit claims a white Hyundai Elantra was seen in the area of the King Road home beginning around 3.26 a.m. Around 4 a.m., investigators say Zana Kernodal received a DoorDash delivery. At 4.12, the affidavit says records show Zana was likely logged on to her TikTok account. The detective also wrote that Koberger's phone was not accessing cell towers for a two-hour time period that morning when the homicides would have been committed. Koberger's defense attorneys have responded to prosecutors' demand that he tell them if he plans to use an alibi at trial. They write that the defense team is still investigating and preparing his case. Evidence corroborating Mr. Koberger being at a location other than the King Road address will be disclosed pursuant to discovery and evidentiary rules as well as statutory requirements. It is anticipated this evidence may be offered by way of cross-examination of witnesses produced by the state, as well as calling expert witnesses. Joining me to discuss this latest development in Brian Koberger's case is Fred Perry. He is a high...
0: We're going to uh, spare Fred Perry. He doesn't get famous on our podcast because we have <laughs> our own We have our own experts. That's, uh, so, uh, yeah, all of this stuff is what the defense is going to have to come up with, because I, I just still, I, I mean, I still do have a problem when they talk about the planting of evidence, specifically DNA evidence. I, I mean, is there a jury on this earth that would believe that?
3: You know, Billy, uh, chronologically, it doesn't make any sense. The insinuation that the, the police may have either intentionally or unintentionally uh you know, transferred Kohlberger's DNA to that nice sheath. Because if you look at the chronological order of events and what we knew about it uh, and what the public knew is that they they said that there was DNA, a touch DNA evidence early, fairly early on, but they couldn't get a hit. And so therefore, um, you know, and then the identification of, of Kohlberger really came a lot from the, uh, from the, uh, the Hyundai. And so, and even if it was inadvertently accidentally transferred onto that knife sheath during the investigation, it would mean that some detective would have had to actually touch something that had Kohlberger's DNA on it, which would be at the crime scene. You know what I mean? So it's not like right. they grabbed him uh, six weeks later, touched him, and then took some skin cells and rubbed it on, on the knife sheath. No, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Um, and I think a, a jury uh, would be would just be like, you know, that's just a uh, defense theory. It's a defense putting forward their best um, theoretical argument as how, as to how the, um, the DNA got there.
2: I think they would be better served. The defense would be better served if they came up with a story where they say that, well, Brian Kohlberger did touch this knife sheet at one time, but he discarded it or he sold it or something like that. That would probably be better served. I think that would be more believable than the police planted the knife sheet under Madison Mogan's body. And it happens to have Brian Kohlberger's touch DNA. There's just a lot of things that uh, I think the jury's going to be able to see through and see that these things aren't realistic or they, they don't make sense. Uh, they're not, you know, they're not common sense. They're not, uh, you know, reasonable, as we say a lot of times when we talk about evidence. And that's what's going to be uh, the most important thing. Listen, when I get up on the stand and I testify and I say A, B and C, just because I say it doesn't mean it's true. Now I get challenged by the defendant attorney, the defense attorney says, well, how do you know this? And I give my side of the story or my reason to believe that the evidence is powerful and and it puts the person at the location. Now it's up to the jury to say, well, we believe that's reasonable what that detective just testified to. And with physical evidence like DNA or you have these uh, cell phone technology, that's very, very powerful stuff. I don't don't feel comfortable calling DNA evidence circumstantial evidence, specifically that knife sheet with his uh, touch DNA on it.
0: You know, apparently, Phil, you're you're right, uh, but apparently, it is circumstantial evidence. Uh, we've had ser- several attorneys say no, DNA is circumstantial evidence. So, uh, you know, I'm not going to argue with uh, uh, Garagos, you know, who's the talking head of choice uh, on CNN and a lot of these other stations, uh, and they've they've stated that DNA evidence is circumstantial evidence well, that
2: inferences in- are drawn. <laughs> Well, in this case, I think I said I don't like the term circumstantial evidence, but yes, that uh, that knife sheet could have had his DNA DNA on it and it could have been placed there. So that's why I believe it to be circumstantial evidence. But I don't think there's going to be any doubt that it's his DNA that's on that sheet. Now, the thing is, how did the knife get the, the, the sheet get there and how did his DNA get there? That's what they're going to have to explain. I don't think there's going to be any argument that it's his DNA, his touch DNA. How did it get there is going to be the argument. Was it transferred? Was it placed by the police? I mean, you know, there's going to be, uh, like I said, reasonable jurors that are going to use common sense. And they're going to be able to come to uh, a conclusion based on what's put forward to them. And again, just because a person gets on the stand, like if they they come up with a witness that's going to corroborate or try to establish an alibi, doesn't mean they're going to stand up to cross-examination. That's the other thing by the prosecution. Phil, go to quick commercial here. Joe Murray, attorney at law. Now, listen, guys, if you found yourself in some type of a jam where you need a criminal defense attorney, let's say a simple you know, DUI or maybe something that's going to put you in jail for 25 years to life, Joe Murray is the man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD, and he's also a boxer. So perhaps he can deliver that knockout punch on your case. So if you want to get a hold of Joe, you can get him on his website at jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702, or you can email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Joe's a big supporter of Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories, and we feel he's a terrific criminal defense attorney. Mike, are a lot of these things
0: uh, that the defense is doing right now really in response to the fact that the prosecution has uh, let their intention of going the death penalty known. So is this why the defense is going to these extremes right now?
3: Billy, yeah. The prosecution, I mean, we i described it, you know, the whole pretrial process is like a chess match. Um, we talked about that with convening the grand jury rather than going to the uh, preliminary hearing and how that cuts off some uh, moves that the defense could make. Yeah. Once, I, I think once the, uh, prosecution said, we will go for the death penalty in this case. Now, you're not just fighting for him to either get out or do 25 years to life. No, you're now fighting for his life or 25 years. If he's found guilty, the minimum he's going to get is life behind bars. That's the absolute minimum. There's, there's, that's it. it. The stakes are so much higher. And yeah, I think, She's pulling out all the stops. I'm sure she is a um, an ethical defense attorney, and she would represent all of her clients well. But I think on a case like this, this is probably the most sensational homicide capital case she's had in her career. And uh, it's all on the line. You know, this is the highest stakes that she could play for. And so, yeah, that pressure now by the by the uh, you know the prosecutor, puts it all on her now because now she's got to decide um, are you now seriously before you might've said, Oh, maybe I'll put, you know, um, you know, Kohlberger on, maybe I won't, you know, now it's kind of like I'm thinking as we're talking that uh, he might actually have to take the stand because there won't be anything left. They're playing for keeps as one roll of the dice. And so, yeah, definitely. This really puts it in a whole different perspective once they announced they are going for the death penalty.
0: I want to play this because this was actually came up a, a bunch of weeks ago. And uh, Elizabeth Vargas with this California prosecutor, Murphy, that said there's overwhelming evidence in this case. And I want to play this to because re- a lot of people aren't convinced that there's overwhelming evidence. So this is a, a homicide district attorney from California. We spent 17 years prosecuting murders.
5: Prosecutor Matt Murphy. Uh, Matt, we know that some of the families do want, the victims' families do want the death penalty. These crimes were heinous. But yeah, and they don't blame that. <laughs> I don't blame them. But how does a prosecutor make this decision?
6: So a prosecutor under these circumstances will weigh the aggravating versus mitigating circumstances. It's essentially um, the same job that a jury will be asked to do. And this case is so overwhelmingly awful, for lack of a better term, I think there's going to be a lot of pressure within the DA's office to actually seek the death penalty on that.
5: And the evidence seems to be very strong. I mean, it's not circumstantial. There's hard, there's DNA evidence, there's cell phone evidence, there's And there's a lot of evidence here.
6: The evidence against Brian Koberger is overwhelming, and that actually is a factor in that decision. Essentially, when people weigh the death penalty, elected DAs, they look for two things. They look for overwhelming evidence, absolutely no doubt of guilt, because the jury will be allowed to consider that in the penalty phase. And remember, this is a bifurcated system. So first there's the guilt guilt trial, and Mm -hmm. then there's the penalty trial they are allowed to consider what's called lingering doubt. So if you have a case where there's there's some wiggle room or a juror might not be sure, they're allowed to consider that in imposing the death penalty. The second thing that every elected DA will consider in making a decision like this is the shocking nature of the crimes. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of cases that are eligible for the death penalty in the United States, the elected DAs don't actually seek it. In Orange County, we sought it in less than 4%. So it is. Wow. Why so seldom? Well, for one thing, um, you want to be absolutely sure as a prosecutor because you have to take the death penalty very seriously, even in a state like California, where it's essentially symbolic. It's a it's a big deal to, to do it. Mm-hmm. It's also a lot more work and it takes a lot longer. And then it faces much harsher appellate scrutiny um, once the conviction and the sentence is imposed.
5: It also affects how you pick a jury.
6: Uh, it absolutely does. Now, uh, what's interesting about this is that you're entitled to a what's called a death qualified jury. Mm-hmm. So, they'll bring in the veneer or the jurors for the trial and they'll all fill out questionnaires and they will be asked about their views on the death penalty. And if they cannot follow Idaho law, which allows for the death penalty, they will be excluded for what's known as cause. So, they won't actually be in in the jury panel or they shouldn't be.
5: So, you've been in this position before as a prosecutor, a homicide prosecutor. What do you think he's going to do?
6: I, I I think this one, it's pretty clear. He, it, my guess is he's seeking the death penalty. Now, behind the scenes, what's happening is he's probably meeting with the defense and saying, show me what you got to try to talk me out of it. In California, we call that a livesy hearing. In Idaho, I don't know what they call it, but I'm sure they're going through that process right yeah. now. Thank
5: you for watching. Go
0: to- I just thought that was very interesting because uh, he is a prosecutor uh, that cuts to the chase. You know, we hear a lot of talking heads on tv or from all different areas many of them don't have the credentials of mr murphy there and he he said right out the evidence is overwhelming and you know look we frequently take criticism on this channel that we're so pro-police pro-prosecution and that's true we are you know but i think in this case i think it is pretty clear that they to me anyway that they have the right guy and again brian Koberger is innocent to proven guilty i wanted to before we, we were at an hour and 12 minutes i wanted to ask one more question before we go to final thoughts um october 2nd this trial's supposed to start is there any shot in the entire world that this is going to start on october 2nd mike
3: billy i don't think so um I originally thought maybe it would, but uh, you were more cynical than me. You said it would be pushed off, and now I'm agreeing with you. Uh, And uh, Phil even said, yeah, we might be talking, you know, know, the winter time, uh, maybe early next spring. I'm thinking that's probably right. Right now, yeah, it's going to be pushed off, I'm going to guess, minimum, right off the bat, 60 days, maybe 90 days. So we're talking now January, maybe into February. And then I think
0: that Mike, I think they're going to be called back to court in 2024. This isn't going until maybe the spring or, or even the summer of 2024. But they, they, as you see, the defense are the ones who want to stay. The prosecution has to be ready to go,
2: and they are ready to go. Mm-hmm. The defense needs more time. Don't and- forget, Billy 50, 51 terabytes of information was turned over to the defense. That's a lot of information and lots and lots of video, lots and lots of cell phone stuff. It's going to be in the defense's interest to put it off. Prosecution is probably going to be ready to go, but I think it's the defense that's going to say, you know what, Your Honor, we have all of this uh, 51 terabytes of uh, evidence or information that was turned over to us. We need more time to investigate it. We need more time to, uh, to, to vet it. We need more time to challenge it. And I don't think uh, we're going to see a trial till, like you said, Billy, probably the earliest, I think, is going to be the spring of 2024. That'll be the earliest when the actual trial starts going. And I think it's going to be a long trial, too. I don't think it's going to be something that's going to be over in two weeks. It's probably going to be, i say, in excess of two to three months. This is a
0: very, very uh, complicated case. Of course, there's four victims. And, uh, you know, we we always, uh, when we do, at least when we do this show, Uh, We we never want to ever forget. That's who we're talking about, the victims, Ethan Chapin, Zaina Kanodal, Madison Mogan, and Kaylee Gonsalves, and their families. Uh, We always want to remember that that's what this case is about, uh, not Brian Koberger. It's about these victims who lost their lives. And again, uh, Brian Koberger is innocent to proven guilty. What he is on trial for? This he's arrested based on probable cause, and the trial and the court system is moving forward. Guys, I'm going to give each of you guys your final thoughts. I'll start with you, Mike Geary. Final thoughts.
3: Final thoughts. I just want the uh, the listening public to know that uh, you know they should uh, just keep their faith in the system. Uh, Ann Taylor's doing the best she can. She's trying every trick in the book. She has to. She has to. She she has to try to create doubt. That's her job. Um, and so therefore just, uh, understand that there is tremendous amount of information that we know about uh, evidence and is a a ton that we have not even an inkling of. So, um, I don't think people should worry too much about what the defense is doing or what Ann Taylor is doing. I wouldn't worry about it.
0: Phil Grimaldi, detective Phil straight out of Brooklyn. Final thoughts.
2: Just going to echo your words, Billy, God bless those victims and their families. These people have gone through just an unthinkable horror. Uh, we're going to look for justice in this case. Ann Taylor is doing what we expect her to do. We want her to give a defense to Brian Colbert. Like I said earlier, we don't want an overturned conviction down the line. And let's face it, ladies and gentlemen, this case has the ultimate penalty, death. So we want to be 1 million percent sure that this person is guilty, everything is going to be challenged. And if he is found guilty and he's given the death sentence, I don't think there'll be anybody shedding any tears over it based on what we know now. And I'm sure there's going to be a ton of other evidence that's going to be re- revealed at the trial. Conspiracy theories, put them to the side, go with the facts. That's what we've said from the beginning on this case. We're seeing a lot of conspiracy theories in Bloom's article. Stay with the facts, guys, and we'll get to the, uh, we'll get to the final conclusion. Absolutely. Folks, on behalf of myself,
0: Bill Cannon uh, from Police Officer the Cup Real Crime Stories, Professor Michael Geary, and straight out of Brooklyn, Detective Phil Grimaldi, thank you so much for tuning in tonight. Have a great rest of your night, and God bless, and we'll see you soon. Stay safe, everyone.
1: Okay. One episode, just